At this moment of incredible global societal challenge, COVID-19, racial injustice, poverty, refugees, war, and the increasing speed of climate change, how can we think about the role of pleasure in our lives? How can we view pleasure as a form of activism? How do we challenge ourselves to think anew and differently about love, sex, and drugs? These and many other questions form the foundation of a complicated, joyful, and thought-provoking conversation at the center of this week's episode, tackling trauma, shame, body change, and unlearning necessary for this moment. So too do these questions. What precisely is social change in the 21st century? And what might social change have to do with imagination and the body? But really, what's been sitting with me for a long time is social change that's embodied, that's heartfelt, and that's massive in its imagination without being this egoic, grandiose vision about like what I'm doing to change the world. Today, a wide-ranging conversation with Caitlin Harrison on Adrian Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. A note for today's listeners, this episode does contain some curse words. I'm Peyton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Caitlin Harrison. Caitlin and I went to college together at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and have known each other for almost 20 years. Since college, Caitlin has lived around the world and currently resides in Bristol in the United Kingdom. We recorded this conversation in June of 2020. So... I guess to sort of like get into it, I, I'd really be interested, I'm going to sort of ask everybody this question yeah. as, a, as a kind of first question, to just tell me about your reading life. Begin to even think about what the history of your reading life is, what it was in the past, what it is now. This can be really anything that you're thinking about in terms of reading. Hmm. Well, my first memory of reading is from when I was not yet two years old. And I remember lying on my back in my crib. I mean, I can put myself there visually and kind of see the horizontal horizontal bars of the cage that young people are often sleeping in. And I think I, you know, I was still wearing diapers and I remember holding a book in front of my face and having the thought, if I just stare at these shapes hard enough, mm it will start to make sense. Mm-hmm. It was the, I remember seeing the, the, um, the black text on the white page and looking mm-hmm. at the letters and going, I know that these shapes have meaning. Right. And obviously in this situation, I meant to take in visual information from this book and understand it. And I can look at the illustrations and they mean something to me. And obviously I'm putting lots of, adult thinking constructs on top of my you know, <laughs> toddler brain. But my felt sense of what that was like was 
looking at these shapes and going, I know there's meaning. And if I just look hard enough, I'll be able to get it. There was this, you know, really strong drive to master the technology of literacy from a very young age. Definitely a form of being able to go into other wor worlds. Um, and, you know, some of the, the strongest reading memories I have are when, you know, as nine, I read a whole series of historical fiction for young readers um, centered around the Holocaust and World War II and the experiences of young people mm. and how absolutely gripping that was as a nine-year-old. And then my reading life, I would say generally speaking, is quite episodic in nature. Yeah. I'll go through periods of time where I am insatiable. I might be reading several books on the go. And then there are periods of time when I'm not reading anything, maybe just letting it all integrate, sink in and making sense of things and contemplating what I've received from various texts. But so also I would say that my reading life is really definitely moved by having books speak to me in various ways and me following my internal guidance to pick the book up and read it. The book that you selected it really took me back to our time in uh, Minneapolis, like especially the year that we lived together in so many ways, in ways that I hope will kind of come up. Um, so this book that you decided, you know, uh, Adrian Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism, yeah. it's, it's super wide-ranging. You can see I've got so <laughs> yeah. many tabs, so many things. What, what drew you to this book? Something that spoke off the shelf or? Well, um, I about, so a little over a year ago, I went to visit a school that's practicing self-directed education in New York City. Hmm. And it was um, the founding Agile Learning Center in and it's on the Upper East Side. And I just, I mean, I'm really interested in non, you know, on consent-based education, on self-directed education for young people, democratic education. And so I'm always looking to learn more about what folks are doing around the world. And became aware of this, this organization, this place, this space, this community supporting young people to follow their interests in New York and went to visit and one of the um, learning facilitators there recommended that I read Adrienne Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy. <laughs> and at the same time, alongside it, I read um, a book called Joyful Militancy. Hmm. The, the names of the authors, I cannot tell you right now. No, I'll look them up. Yeah, when I do the transcript, yeah, I'll look um, them up. But really what's been sitting with me for a long time is social change that's embodied, that's heartfelt, and that's massive in its imagination without being this egoic, grandiose vision about like what I'm doing to change the world, which um, I think my education somehow kind of <laughs> fostered notions along those lines 
the latter, you know, and me about like, ah, I have, I've been, you know, politicized in university. Like I've got to do big things. And yet, um, I also seem to notice that in the trying to be and do differently, there was this, this kind of criticality competition and this heaviness and seriousness and this, I don't really have my own vocabulary for describing it. And I think Adrian Marie Brown's work and the authors of Joyful Militancy really capture this in a way that I don't know how to yet. Mm-hmm. But the sense of how to bring joy and aliveness to the work of re-envisioning worlds without yeah. getting too caught up in being special or changing the world. I think one of the things that I was thinking about as I kept reading this book and I just knew the body would come up because it's such a present force in the text is that, well, I was really thinking about two things. One is I was thinking about what's going on as I age. And one of the things that I've really started to come to a different sort of appreciation about and a different awareness of is the pain that I feel in my body, right? Like not the pleasure, which is what the book is asking me to do, but the actual pain. And I know that it's like years and years of carrying trauma, which is another thing that comes up in the book, right? So I I feel a lot of pain now in my emerging, you know, 40s in the top part of my back because I'm pretty consistently uh, clenched up. I've noticed that I'm clenched up. I feel a lot of pain in my, sometimes there'll just be like pain that shows up, like in my knees or, you know, and and I'm very interested in thinking about that. But I'm also really interested in thinking about the ways that as a queer man, I was socialized in a certain way to think about my body. Mm. And, you know, with, a lot of vulnerability and just honesty, I've generally lived a life where I I hate my body. Like I don't like to see myself naked. I don't feel good about sex or pleasure because I carry this like societal shit that has been programmed Mm. into us about like what queerness means and all that. And so this book really I've always known that, but it really forces me to kind of deal with some of those issues that I haven't dealt with in my life, you know? I I was just thinking like you pulled this quote from page 116, but I pulled some other sub quotes because, you know, a lot of what she's talking about in that chapter is about, you know, well, she, she, she talks a lot about this idea of like doing things, for example, of standing in front of the mirror and finding yes. a part of your body and being like, 
that part of, you know, that part of my body is beautiful. Like fat roll, you are beautiful or pimple, you are beautiful or whatever the case is, like all these things that we're socialized against. And it's the same thing with emotions. Like she, she does at some point talk about like getting naked with your emotions, right? Like when you feel something, be like, it's okay. Emotion, it's beautiful that you're elated or it's beautiful that you're frustrated or whatever the case is. Like that's an important thing to think about. Yes. So how are you practicing that in your life? Well, I'm not, I mean, I am terrified of it. Like, okay. Like particularly, I mean, when Adrienne Marie Brown talks about the practice of spending a year looking at herself in the mirror, like I do not have a full length mirror in my house Mm -hmm. because I know if there is one, my habit will be to look at myself and talk shit and criticize. You know, so much of what, uh, what she's talking about in the book, what Adrian is talking about is about this idea of finding pleasure in our body. Mm. And I really am interested in thinking about like, how do we find that pleasure and why is that important, particularly in this moment? Yes. Do you have yes. any thoughts? Do you have any, how are you doing that? Maybe, well, I mean, maybe the book is helping you to think about that, but. I think the book is definitely helping me to think about that because I think also, I don't how to articulate this. For me, university, generally speaking, like I felt quite free. Mm-hmm to be in my body and I had some practices, some pleasure practices going to like, I, you know, University of Minnesota, once you had a full course schedule, you could take anything else on top of that without additional cost. And I filled my schedule with dance classes, you know, and yeah. And, you know, and I navigated also my own sexuality and having relationships that really were ultimately about sexual pleasure, but then also negotiating this weird thing that was going on with the, um, the unspoken assumptions about what sex means between two people in their early twenties, you know, like, um, so I don't really, I don't have a great deal of clarity on what I'm trying to say right at this moment, but, um, I felt much freer to pursue my own pleasure during that particular period of my life. And now I'm really challenged as a parent to make space for my own pleasure when I watch myself prioritize the pleasure of my beloved and my daughter above my own consistently. And that doesn't serve anybody. In an email exchange, you talked about this book stirring you. For me, it really brings to the surface all of my contradictions in a really powerful way. And it's like, oh, I have all these ideas about who I am in the world. And yet, fundamentally, like, how am I showing up in my own body in alignment? Often not very well. No, yeah, it's totally about that that set of contradictions. I mean, again, you know, going back to this idea of like how the book really challenged me in terms of the way that 
the way that queerness, when we were growing up in society, you know, being gay was, it's so different now. I mean, I can't wait to see what, what these young people experience. But when we were growing up, dealing with being gay, it was like everything was about denying the body pleasure because pleasure would give you AIDS. Pleasure yeah. would give you sexual disease. Ple and, and so you were just trained to think about this is, you know, you can't possibly do it. It's yeah. wrong. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. And, um, you know, so all that to say that, like, I often will position myself in society in certain ways as like a non-sexual being primarily because there's there's a there's still a certain amount of shame wrapped up in my own sexuality that I have to deal with right that I have never dealt with so the book is forcing me to do that but also in order to make other people feel comfortable i mean you can it, Despite all the social progress, people are still very uncomfortable around, around gay people. Like they don't want to touch your body. They are afraid that you're hitting on them. There's, there's all kinds of things. So even things that might be pleasurable from a non-sexual perspective, things like mm. hugs, handshakes, you know, kind of camaraderie in terms of intimate friendship, a lot of queer people are really denied those possibilities because they spend so much time and energy making sure that other people feel comfortable around them, that they don't get to experience their own body. So it's like, you're always worried about someone else's body. You're not worried about your own. Yes. Yeah. Can I, that reminds me of yeah, a, a, a quote in the book mm -hmm. that I wonder if you feel connects. Um, page 231. Uh -huh. This is in a chapter, pornography and accountability within the context of looking at sex within the context of me too. Mm -hmm. So I think it's in a subsection. Yeah. And, and about halfway down the page, I have to honor all the silence in these examples, honor my own silence. Our silence is a survival strategy. Our silence has protected us against potential violence, an unfortunately common response of patriarchy and or other kinds of power when met with rejection. Our silence protects us from being rejected. Our silence upholds social norms that teach us that it's more important to be polite than to be honest, even when discussing our own flesh. Silence played some role in helping us survive to get to this moment, but silence will not get us to a place of power over our bodies and it will not get us the pleasure we want. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you brought this section up because I think it's really important. As Audre Lorde says, our silence will not protect us. And of course, like one of the foundational essays in the front part of the book is from Audre Lorde, the uses of the erotic, right? Yeah from Sister Outsider, which also ironically, or maybe not ironically, is a book that, although I had read pieces of Audre Lorde, you know, Hierarchy of Oppression and stuff, I had never read Sister Outsider until this past February, like from front to back, right? And the whole thing is just, it's unbelievable. So, so this idea of silence, you know, what are you thinking of here? 
in terms of how that plays into what we were talking about with the body? So I think what you were talking about in terms of your sexuality, same, you know, this experience of concerning oneself for other people, about other people's comfort. Um, I think that's what you were saying about, you know, yeah. And that, and so in, in, in essence, the reason why I connected with that passage is like, to silence ourselves and a silencing of the body, not just of the voice, but also like how we move and how we reach out to people. I think of the silencing, you know, across different modes of expression, but this kind of clamping down, quieting down, minimizing. Um, and I think one of the main, one of the incredible gifts of this book is that throughout the interviews and the contributors and Adrienne Marie Brown's own narrative about her experience. And there are all of these examples of how to speak up in all the ways that one can. I think what's missing in the United States response to COVID in particular, but also in response to racial injustice and rape culture and everything is the fact that, and, and this is one of the things that you actually pointed out, uh, one of the quotes that you pointed out, I think it's on uh, it? page, page 332. And yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe this will, I mean, this is one of the best pages in the whole book, but yeah. It's this idea of like, who owns your body and yeah. how, how does that work? Yeah. You know, oh, this, this page, this whole page is like, read, read this quote that you selected here, this as for love. I tried to find it. I'm having a little moment. Oh, yes. As for love, how dare anyone ever claim the life of another? in any shape or form, via love or hate, via human trafficking or marriage. The channel does not matter. You hardly own yourself, let alone any others. Mm -hmm. And then further down on that page, you know, I mean, I highlighted almost the whole page, but further yeah. down, it's like, no one can own you. Yeah. And you are free to share your love, share your time and body, share your wine and laughter, mm. share your dreams and worries respect the mind in its sharpness and loss, the mood in its light and darkness, the wealth in its abundance and poverty. But then that, that middle paragraph that I skipped might go to this question that you are really asking, which is understand the individuality and the communality as well mm -hmm. as the commonality of life, pain, and death. And in between, be open to love, joy, and promise. What I... What I think has been really interesting about this moment with the COVID crisis and with, with just everything is the way that people have once again reproduced this idea that certain bodies are just expendable. Yeah. Right? It's like, 
my my ability to not wear a mask is more important than your ability to live. Mm. You know, grocery store clerk, mail yeah. person, I mean, whoever yeah. these essential workers are. Yeah. And I just don't know how we get people to see past that. Well, I think, yeah, from my public health education comes in here. And I think often there's just a massive confusion around population health, population health level interventions mm -hmm. and how they play out at the individual level. Mm -hmm. And often across all different situations, there's a tension where when you look at the intervention that will reduce morbidity and mortality at the population level, it often doesn't predict at the individual level, an individual person's level of risk. And I think people have a really hard time not dealing with that tension. I mean, I think one of the things that she's saying, and it actually goes to this larger idea of love, right? Mm -hmm. That comes up in the book. I mean, you know, I, I think one of the things that the book really made me sort of grapple with was this, was the way that we think of love so much as just, the, it is the sexual, but it's also like there's pleasure beyond the sexual and you need to have sexual pleasure, but love itself is not really about sexual pleasure, right? Mm. And resisting thinking of thinking of love as a form of political resistance means mm. yes, pleasuring yourself and your body, but also thinking about love in like a, a larger in a larger way that, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's just that that chapter, Love is Political Resistance, where uh, she sort of talks a little bit about this idea that, you know, like this is a quote on page 59. One of the things that I was really wanting to talk about was this idea of we don't learn, she says, quote, we don't learn to love in a linear path from self to family to friends to spouse as we might have been taught. We learn to love by loving. We practice with each other on ourselves in all kinds of relationships. And right now, we need to be in rigorous practice because we can no longer afford to love people the way we've been loving them. Yes. So it like smacks you with this idea of what, what love is pleasure Love is pleasurable. It's part of pleasure activism, but mm. it's not necessarily just entirely about sexual pleasure. No. The way that I've been taught to love often was laced with control. Not just control of the other, but control of oneself. Control of one's speech, lest I, you know, hurt anybody, control of one's 
needs, lest I inconvenience anybody, control of my desires, lest they scare anybody. Mm. Um, and so when I hear, yeah, when I hear the, the call to learn to love differently, I'm hearing, yeah, the lesson that I'm really taking with me around that is around noticing all the ways that I'm trying to control myself and other people in my relationships. You, so you just said, so much of how I was taught to love was taught through control, right? And I think one of the things that this book really does well is it, it teaches also that what we've actually done to ourselves as a species is we've, we've traumatized love, right? Mm. Like in every aspect. So we've created, we've created this whole system. You, it's about control. It's about boundaries. It's about even things like monogamy, no polyamory, no pleasuring of the body, all of these types of systems that we've created, which are actually just forms of social trauma. And so when you're trying to think about like, how do you love people differently, which is so critical in this moment, it, I mean, I don't know, it just makes you think about what, what should we be doing? Love is not a post on social media. No. You know, love is, love is practice. Love is like really, really difficult. Um, and I just think that we're all traumatized and I just worry that we're being even more traumatized by the current moment we're, we're going mm -hmm. through. And I'm just trying to think about like, how do you hold on to this concept of communal love as maybe a guiding principle that we want to bring into a post-COVID, hopefully emerging anti-racist world. It'll be interesting, particularly with the, you know, when you talk about proximity to other humans and being able to discern when it's appropriate to be close and when it's responsible to be close. And um, when it's necessary to be close, even if some people may think it's irresponsible, like protesting. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um. And that ongoing discernment, I mean, I, now I've lost what your initial question was, but about loving, loving post-COVID. Was that the- Yeah, the, but I guess I'm, tr I'm, I'm trying to think, yeah, it's, I mean, okay, so post-COVID, I agree with you. Uh, not correct language from me because I don't think there will be a post-COVID world. Um, I guess what I'm saying is like for a long time now, people have been talking about this broader concept of love. You know, I mean, you can even go back to civil rights era, even before mm. that, right? Like this idea mm. of the beloved community that Martin Luther King talks about. You can yeah. think about like people now, uh, like the Poor People's Campaign in the United States with Reverend William Barber, um, who's really trying to re-emphasize and refocus on this idea of caring for those in our community and thinking about how do we take care of you know, we can't 
tackle poverty, for example, without love. But I think that people don't know what that means. And, and so this quote that I read just strikes me because particularly the part of like, we're not, we're not in rigorous practice about love because we're traumatized. Do we deal with the trauma so we can get to love or do we think about and enact practices of love that will help us to overcome the trauma? I think that's the, one of the tensions in the book. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a trauma expert. I'm, you know, I, there's, and so I, I, I have a really, like, I'm not, you know, I have a real hesitancy about speaking about trauma and ways to live with, move through, integrate, heal. Yeah, but that's that's part of know. what she's talking about. Yeah. Yes, like, does it resonate with you maybe that, because she uses that language in the book. She says, you know, there's collective trauma, there's individual mm. trauma. We've talked about that, right? You're mm. saying that you learned love through control. Me saying mm. that there's trauma in my body from learning to be, learning less about my own body and learning more about how I relate to other people's bodies in order to make them comfortable. Like there's just Mm -hmm. myriad forms of social trauma and individual body trauma. Yeah. And I'm just trying to think about when she says, maybe this is the question, Caitlin. Okay. (laughs) Maybe we can work through it together. Okay. Like when she, when she says that we need to, to do healing, right? Which, which she does say that. She says that on page 62. We are mm. all in need of healing. So how are we doing healing work? And I think part of it is this concept of love and the body. I really appreciate these chapters where there are some contributors who come in that make us think differently about some social issues that often don't get talked about. And there are two specifically. Are you referring to the the sex work um, chapter? Yes. Yes. So there's a chapter in the book called Fuck You, Pay Me. Okay. Yes that I think it, it takes up the idea of sex work and why sex work might, why we might want to as a society consider um, making sex work legal and all of this. Um, but it also gets into kind of larger issues around the way that the body functions in capitalist societies. So I really want to talk about uh, that chapter. And there's also a chapter about called Conditions of Possibility that talks about drug use and the way that we deal with people who are using drugs in society. And I think both of these chapters are really Mm. important because they provide a different framework, a different lens on which to consider these issues. So what do you think about those, either of those chapters? Is there, is there one or the other of you? Well, but I mean, it's around okay, page 182, so, yeah. 183. Well, so, yeah. so, so fuck you, pay me mm. by Chanel Gallant. Gallant. Yep. Gallant. Thank you for your pronunciation. Probably 
was my favorite chapter of the entire book. I'm going to share what happened in my house. I, because I think this really illuminates how potent and how poignant this chapter is. I read the chapter and I raced down to the kitchen where my partner Brenton and our friend Helena were. And I said, I just read the most fucking amazing essay about sex work that I've ever read. And it just, and I gave some examples, I paraphrased. And I was like all hot and fiery about it, like fully passionate, you know, just on fire about this chapter. And the impact of me sharing that was that Brenton felt that he got really, he was upset by what he heard me say. Which is what? That you supported the idea of legalizing well, sex work or was it something broader or, than that? Or it, it was the notion of, um, it was around the, the labor that sex is work. Okay, yeah. And how, and how also, um, so this is on page 182, who's afraid of the big bad whore? I think this is what I paraphrased for, for Brenton. That in a sense, women and femmes are all forced to be sexual laborers, to please mm -hmm. men and masculine people with our bodies. But we are never allowed to admit that this, is, that this giving of pleasure is real work and that sometimes it is forced work. We are certainly never allowed to take control of this work and negotiate to receive something in exchange for it. Because asking for money makes a woman or femme a whore. And surprise, our culture tells us that this is the very worst thing we can be. Yes. And then, you know, so all of this. So yeah, and women and femmes are supposed to treat sexual pleasure like good wives doing the housework. Do it for straight men, mostly at home, invisibly with a smile, and of course for free. Make them happy. Don't ask for too much. Wouldn't want to see women and femmes actually get something in return, would we? So I was paraphrasing that and I, and, and Brenton felt really quite upset and concerned that I was saying that he expects me to perform sexual pleasure for him, irrespective of whether I want to or not. Now, what's interesting is that that kind of, that hurt, that wound means that it's, we haven't yet been able to, to look underneath that and sit with what's there. That that cultural conditioning, that socialization is present. This chapter, it's, it's honestly one of the best essays I've read also. And it's, it's, it's not actually, it's not just about like the idea of legalizing sex work, right? It's about yeah. the ways that this author, Chanel Gallant, is able to tie together capitalist superstructures, yes. cisgendered, you know, traditional gender role types of things. And this idea that like, why, why is it possible that in particular, women are always required, even when it's not actually sex, are always required to do sexualized work but they're not allowed to ask for any sort of compensation for it. And 
you know, this quote on page 183 about, you know, how about instead of demanding, how about instead of ending the demand for sex work, we end the demand for profit. Yeah. Right? Because like she, she says this whole thing about like, yeah, eyes to men also, right. She says this thing about essentially we're all sex workers because we're all selling our bodies anyway right? When you go to your corporation or you go to your university or you do whatever it is that you're doing in the capitalist superstructure, you're actually selling your body. So why don't we just say that sex is something people need? Yes. And if people want to do that work, they should be able to do the work. Safely. Safely and And controlled and with protection and and all kinds of things. Yeah. Yes. You know, she talks about, you brought up the idea of like being a whore. And there's this line where she, and I had never thought about this before. This is on page 182. You know, but she says, we use the term whore to refer to the feminine sin of demanding too much. Attention whore, fame whore, money whore. A whore commits the sin of wanting, whether it's money, sex, or attention. So it's, it was a sort of Achmedian moment where like, you know, oh yeah, we really do use that language. Yeah. And you think about when you've said it, stop being an attention whore. Hmm. And then you, so now you have to think like, well, to your point, we've been socialized into that, but we've never been forced to think about it. It's there. Hmm. She frames it in capitalist structures. And she brings it back to pleasure. The the quote is on page 187, where she says, you know what feels amazing? Surviving capitalism. Yeah. And I thought, (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) Yes. When you end the month with more than $1.25 in your checking account, you feel pretty damn good about stuff. Yeah. It is so, so good. Like, I want everyone I know to read this essay. And then, like, the other chapter is that chapter about drug use. And I I just thought that, for me, that chapter really humanized an issue that I think we don't really like talking about too much in our society. Um, you know, and there's the, there's all these questions for readers who might want to think about this. There's these questions that come up around page, I think it's maybe 247, about why do people use drugs? Mm. Yes. And, and they're called what if questions. Yeah. What if someone is using as an attempt to mitigate the stress and impact of previous or concomitant trauma and mental health issues? What if someone comes from a community of people who use and then, and thus drug use is a cultural norm? What if drug use is part of spiritual practice? What if drug use is a way to tap into inner creative selves? What if a person uses drugs because they get pleasure? What if a person, what if people who use drugs are people first? People who are more than the sum total of their drug use. Yeah. For me, what ties these two chapters together is purity culture and i know that there's and for me that's what connects these two chapters really clearly is this notion of purity Mm -hmm. and and how religious institutions 
indoctrinate people with this notion of purity and the ways that and that you want to be pure and stay pure and there are certain ways to become unpure and sex and drugs are probably the main headlines for how to be unpure or impure is probably the word i'm really looking for but when i look at the the role of religion and shaping my sense of my own body and my understanding of sex and sexuality i it creates space for some self-compassion how say say more about that because i just think if you are if the if the the stories that you grow up hearing tell you that human bodies are inherently sinful how could we come into adulthood with a you know full embodiment and delight in and respect for our own pleasure how could we feel that our queerness was okay how could we feel that our that our desire without wanting necessarily some sort of relationship that fits heteronormative ideals how how could that be possibly be okay or or another thing like that neither of us can speak to but that the book speaks to is how can black bodies themselves or bodies of color non-white bodies yeah you know because this book is essentially a black feminist manifesto about the body I, I just want to acknowledge that Adrienne Marie Brown, you know, at the, on the cover, it says written and gathered by Adrienne Marie Brown. And for me, it's important to acknowledge how the form of the book, mm-hmm. for me, I felt invited to be woven in amongst the narratives. And that, so that reading the book in and of itself was a, an extremely pleasure, pleasureful and sensual experience. It was like being woven in to this collective body. And so I just, I want to express my gratitude. I mean, I guess I really just want to express my gratitude to all of the people who are living their lives and this, these profoundly radical, beautiful, accountable, daring ways and sharing them with us. And it feels really important to me to say thank you. I think like my closing thought about the book would be that there's a quote that I really want to make sure I include in the podcast. So I'm going to, you know, put it here and it it speaks to what you said about the way that the people that are contributors and Adrienne Marie Brown herself are really doing this. It's on page 258. And I think it's kind of this idea of like interrupt, interrupting this idea of despair with hope. Yeah. Um, so the quote on page 258 is, we are all responsible to find a way, a moment, an opening, or a set of relationships that allow us to grow as interrupters of despair. Yes. And I think that what she's really saying is pleasure is the way to do that. Yes. Thank you. And this book is just going to continue moving me forever.
I agree. I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful book. I really hope that people will listen to it and, or not listen to it. Well, maybe there's an audio version. I don't know. I hope people I will read it and, uh, and just think about the complexity of what she's saying. And mm. I, I really, I thank you for being the first person to be part of this new, exciting project, which is just so amazing. It was such an honor, such an honor. And I am so excited to hear all of the other conversations you have as well. I can't wait. Caitlin Harrison was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and now lives in Bristol, United Kingdom, with her partner and daughter. Caitlin is an unschooling practitioner, an informal postpartum pelvic health advocate, and a spontaneous maker with an enduring interest in hidden and informal curricula. Nora, Caitlin's daughter, wants the following words to be included in this bio. Amazing being. You can contact Caitlin via email. C-T-L-N-H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N at gmail.com. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, rhizoreader at gmail.com, or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account, at rhizoreader. You can listen again, share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, where you can also listen to the unedited version of my conversation with Caitlin. We discuss self-compassion, raising body-positive children, religion, and provide our own pleasure reports. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episode link of our website, www.risoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolovsky, copyright-free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright-free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Peyton, and this has been the Rhizomatic Reader.